Who wants to learn some more about reverse mortgages? We'll stick around and listen to part two of two of my previously recorded discussion with Josh Bloom, a reverse mortgage specialist, in this, the 43rd episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Hello, hello. So we meet again. Thank you as always for joining, for listening. Today is part two of two of a previous discussion I had through a live streaming video in my Facebook group, Taxes and Retirement, from early 2021, where I had special guest Josh Bloom a reverse mortgage specialist from Mutual of Omaha, come on and talk all about, from soup to nuts, from the ground up, uh, reverse mortgages. It was a, it was a tremendously uh, informative educational discussion about what exactly are reverse mortgages, how do they work, how much do they cost, how do you get them, when do they make sense, when do they not? And there's a whole bunch of uh, viewer Q&A that Josh was kind enough to field for uh, people who are watching live at the time. If you haven't, definitely go back and check out episode 42 of uh, this podcast, which was part one of two of my of my chat with Josh. Today, I, I literally just ripped the audio in half. It was about an hour and 15 minute audio from the original Facebook live airing. I just kind of cut it down the middle. The first one was slightly longer, but you know, basically just cut it, slapped the first part of that audio into last week's episode of this podcast. And today is the second part of the audio. There wasn't really a smooth transition in terms of like content and, and things Josh and I were discussing at the time. I, I just sort of stopped it right in the middle where one question ended and another one started. So um, anyway, whatever. It's the quality of the content that matters, right? Not the uh, production value of, of how seamless it all flows together. So without further ado, I present to you part two of two of my uh, previously recorded chat with Josh Bloom from Mutual of Omaha. Here we have it. Uh, another quick question, and then I have a question about the mechanics of the adjustable rate style. So Tao asked, does the reverse mortgage pay for the real estate taxes insurance? I guess similar to a traditional mortgage where it's kind of lumped in your payment. How does it work here? It could be. Uh, that's called the life expectancy set aside. And the reason it's called the life expectancy set aside is because we don't know how long you're going to live as a borrower. And so we use an actuarial table to determine your life expectancy. And we say, if you're going to escrow or impound your taxes and insurance, and pay for it out of the house, out of the equity of the house, you have to do that based off your life expectancy. So let's say okay. it's $4,000 a year and you're going to live for the next 20 years. Well, that's $80,000 of equity that you no longer have access to. It's set aside yep. to go pay that. And twice a year, the lender will pay it out of the equity of the house. You can be forced into this situation if you have a credit history that's not ideal and you're, okay. you, you're, you've shown a pattern of irresponsibility or in, inability to pay on your debt obligations. You can be put in a position where they, they say, hey, if you want to do this, you have to do this set aside. Or if you don't have enough residual income, you have to show a certain level of income. You have to qualify for these, Andy. A lot of people don't Got realize it. that. You, it's not, it's not as if I own a house, I have equity and I'm over 62, give me a reverse mortgage. Nah, used to be that way. Not anymore. Now it's, I've got to show financial responsibility and I have to show that I have the ability to pay taxes and insurance, not just today, but down the road. So I have to have yeah. a certain level of income, not as onerous as traditional financing, but there is still, 
you know, the need to qualify. There's a financial assessment component to this. That's okay. a big change from what it used to be. Now, now, can you talk about that? I think um, a lot of people's opinion of reverse mortgages is seeing, I don't know, Chuck Woolery or Robert Goulet pitching it, you know, 15 years ago, right? Yeah. Uh, but don't get me wrong. I love Chuck Woolery as much as the next guy. But um, so, so what changed? You mentioned the underwriting is different. You have to qualify now. Sounds like you didn't before. So can you talk about pre, I guess it was financial crisis was the turning point, pre-financial crisis and now what's different, you know, what's better, what's worse even in the, in the industry? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to I'll start with an, an analogy because I, chances are most of the, our viewers are probably sitting with a cell phone somewhere near them. And we could probably all say you, you might have a Samsung. I might have an Apple. A phone's a phone's a phone. Uh, and it's true. But chances are none of us are walking around with phones from 20 years ago. Yeah. He's got a phone that needs to get plugged into the wall that they're walking around with. Right. right. The challenge in the reverse mortgage world is you still have plenty of people who bought a reverse mortgage 20 years ago walking around with one. Okay. Uh, and so the reverse mortgage has changed tremendously over the years, and especially after the financial crisis, because that financial assessment didn't exist. There was really no litmus test to see if you should be able to get a reverse mortgage or if you could actually afford to age in place, which is what this is all about. There okay. needs to be some sort of test there to say, can you actually afford to live in your home? Because for a lot of people, the answer is no, and they shouldn't be using a reverse mortgage. They need to find alternatives. Yeah. So we look at the reverse mortgage today and and really, really good news. Uh, the HUD and the FHA has done a tremendous job of really uh, reducing the risk associated with a reverse mortgage, not just to the insurance fund, but to the consumer. And they yeah. put a whole lot of additional consumer safeguards in place that did not exist in the past. Uh, really, especially around couples where you had somebody who was over 62 and somebody under 62. So you had a borrower and a non-borrower. There used to not be protections for that. So you hear horror stories in the reverse mortgage. Oh, you know, husband passed away, wife's getting kicked out of the house. It's because the loan came due. She wasn't a borrower. Husband oh, borrowed wow. money under his name and she had no rights. Well, that, that's the past. Okay. You know, just last week, and again, May 12, 2021, just last week, uh, they came out with uh, some new regulations that have to go in place latest September 3rd, 2021. Lenders can put them into place today. You can get married after you start a reverse mortgage and still have spousal protections in place. And the spousal protections okay. are essentially, hey, you can um, you can stay in the home as a spouse and you can defer this, this maturity of the loan, the payment. You can defer that for as long as you live in the house and abide by everything else the borrower had agreed to, staying current on taxes and insurance so on and so forth. Okay. So when you look at the financial assessment, you look at the non-borrowing spouse and the spousal protections that are in place that weren't in the past. And then you take into account that the actual benefit that you can get from this has been reduced significantly from where it was a okay. decade ago. So, so the government actually said, hey, if 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 you're saying 50% is the guideline, Josh, well, 10 years ago, it might've been 75%. The government's brought okay. that down a number of times which is good because people are living a long time and these should be structured where you still have equity in the home. But Andy, I got, I got to admit, there's, there's a long way that needs to go here. When you look at other countries, because of the reverse mortgage is not unique to the States. Um, okay. Australia, it's really, really big in Australia. Canada has it. South Korea has it. China has it. The UK has it uh, along with a number of other things. The, the number of people in the UK using this versus the States, it's about five to seven times. 
So oh, wow. why is it so much dramatically different in the UK versus the US? Well, behaviorally, people aren't any different in the UK than they are here, right? We're all we're all the same. Right. We are we all have the same challenges. So there's nothing that you can really point to that say that says it's behavior. It really has to come down to the structure of regulations and restrictions and how the government has, you know, tweaked the design. Yeah. It's less flexible here and it's it's kind of more of a challenge, I think, than it is in other countries. As they continue to streamline this, the the utility for more people is going to increase. I think right now we're at like 100,000 people on average are using this a year. It fluctuates a little bit. It's a really small piece of the pie. You look at the amount of people denied 62 and up for traditional mortgages, Andy, it was something like 400 plus thousand dollars in 2018 or 400,000 plus people People. were denied. Uh, Anywhere from, I think the number is up to 27% of those would have qualified for a reverse mortgage if they had applied for a reverse mortgage. And 5 million people over the age of 62 today carry a traditional mortgage. So we look at, oh, there's 100,000 people that did it. I'm not saying it's appropriate for five and a half million people, but they're th- somewhere in between is where that number really ought to fit right. if it continues to streamline the way I think we'll see it because it's and a necessary and, tool. And, and streamline how? Streamline, you mean less options, less, like like what's different in, in the regulatory environment or the product itself between here and UK, for example? So that that's a, that's a tough question for me to answer in a short amount of time. I, <laughs> I think, what, and, and it's not just cool. consumer facing it. It's, it's lender facing, right? It's, it's what, what's the burden on the lender? It's the, yeah. the idea that we have to follow all the FHA rules versus conventional rules that alone. And, and you speak to anybody in the, the, the mortgage industry, uh, the burden of an FHA financing or a VA financing, these government insured financings versus conventional financing, uh, it, the burden's much higher on okay. the entire industry. And so if you can if you can relax some of that, and I'm not saying increase risk, I'm just saying relax some of these rules and restrictions, make it kind of more normalized towards conventional loans and financing, that, that, would, that would make it a lot more accessible to a lot more people. And if I if I were to sum that up, I would sum it up in, in like the condominium space. Like condominiums can have a reverse mortgage on them, but probably 99 out of 100 condominiums cannot have a reverse mortgage on them because of the rules and restrictions around FHA financing. So even oh, though wow. technically you're allowed to do it and every other phone call I, I handle in Florida is for a condominium, chances are it's not going to happen. And that's where wow. the accessibility is really tough here versus where it might not have that challenge in the UK. Interesting. Not to get on too much of a sidebar, but why why are condominiums problematic? Is the price deemed to be more variable than than regular houses, you know, single family houses? You're you're pooling a number of people under one roof. And so you have to recognize simple rules like it has to be principal residence. Well, when we're dealing with a pool of people, at least half of that pool of people need to be principal residents. In condominiums, that's not always the case. Uh, condominiums, you know, you have upkeep for community grounds and community space. Yeah, A lot of condominiums don't keep up reserves for that. FHA requires at least 10% reserves. So so down here in, the, in Florida, a lot of the condominiums, they just do special assessments. Well, great. People are fine with assessments. Hypothetically, the right. FHA is not though. FHA says, no, you, you can't have special assessments. Show us 10% reserves. If you don't have 10% reserves, uh-huh. You're not financially responsible as a condominium association. Sorry, we're not going to underwrite. 
Got it. Yeah. So that's the sort of thing that knocks condom names out. And then FHA last but not least, not to go into the weeds, but uh, you cannot discriminate on assumability. The FHA says anybody can assume a property if you want to abide by fair housing rules and restrictions. A lot of condominiums, the, the association docs say we get to choose if somebody lives here or not. We don't want a felon living here, which, OK, right. no problem. I think most people living in a condom <laughs> might be OK with that. FHA is not. That's not OK. Oh. That'll knock you out. So uh, there's a, a number of reasons, condoms, but that's the sort of thing where it, it's an accessibility issue. Right. No, that, that makes sense. That's interesting. I don't think about that. So the FHA does want does not want you discriminating against uh, convicted felons. It sounds like against anybody. God, the nerve! Um, <laughs> it's not taking see. our felons. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, I didn't read this yet, but good evening. What would be a rough estimate for the loan if the current LTV is say forty percent instead of Andy's example of a house owned outright, roughly fifty percent of the sixty percent equity in the house? Uh, not sure that's going. Maybe, maybe there's a loan already outstanding. Yeah, I, that, that's how I'm reading this. So if I have a loan that's roughly 40% of the house, so let's use really easy numbers. Let's say it's a $100,000 home. I owe $40,000. Yep. I can access roughly 50% of the value of the house. So I can access roughly $50,000. My access is $10,000, right? Arguably pay off the existing lien of $40,000, yeah. 40%. I have access to $10,000 or 10%. Uh I can't tell if this is asking about the the fixed rate, which it might be. Um, I, I don't want to make assumptions on the question. I don't want okay. I don't want to misanswer. Right, sure. A um, few more questions, but I, so so I want to know, and, and I don't know the answers, which is legitimately why I'm asking. But like the the revolver, the fixed. I'm sorry, the the floating rate. So let's go. See, simple example: the the loan I'm approved for is a hundred thousand dollars. I don't take any of it yet. I want it there for flexibility, whatever. Um, I've read that those can actually increase over time. How does that work? So I get a traditional home equity line of credit. It's a hundred thousand dollar loan. Tap it when I need it. Pay interest as loans outstanding. Pay it back whenever I want. Goes back into the pot for you know another hundred thousand to borrow. How does it work in this scenario? So your your adjustable rate. You've got three options today, uh, and this is this is a recent change just uh, at the end of last year. But you have three options. You have an annual adjustable, which uh, has a has a two one adjustable, so it can adjust up to two percent a year, up once a year, okay. with a with a ceiling of five percent over where you start. So if you start at two and a half percent, your ceiling's seven and a half percent, and you can't move beyond four and a half percent your first year, right? Got it. It, so okay. that's the two one adjustable with a ceiling annual. Uh, you also have monthly, and a monthly with a five percent ceiling, and a monthly with a ten percent ceiling. Okay. And with the monthlies, you don't have the the limit on the you don't have that two one aspect. So you just have this the ceiling. And so I might have a two and a half percent loan where my ceiling's seven and a half percent, or my ceiling could actually be twelve and a half percent. And and the loan it's uh, the rate itself can change monthly. Correct. Okay. Exactly right. And that rate we're talking about is the constant maturity treasury, which okay. is it's the replacement for the LIBOR, the London Interbank Overnight Rate, yep. uh, which which most institutions and, and instruments have been moving away from for a number of years. And is it that or is that plus some spread? Yeah. So there's a margin associated, right? So okay. your constant maturity treasury today is 
basis points, a point yeah. one, you know, and change something along those lines. Uh, so, so you will have a margin on there. What right. the margin is, is, is kind of dependent on the market and the environment right. that we're in right now. Your margins are, are really pretty low. I mean, if you think about, it, I talked about a, a sub 2% loan earlier, uh, we're dealing with very low margins in, yeah. in our current environment. It's a very good macro environment from an interest rate perspective. Okay. And so I, I get my loan, I can choose to roll the initial cost into the loan or I guess out of the loan if, if I'd like, correct? Yeah. It, more, more often than not, people who are doing this are not coming in to bring cash in to reduce their closing costs. They're financing almost all of them into the loan. Okay. And so the, the, let's say it's $20,000 total. I'm making a number up. So that the clock starts accruing on that $20,000 once the loan is under uh, live, right? Correct. Okay. And is that how the revol- how the available draw can go up over time? Like that's something I never fully grasped. Yeah, you know, it's it's really difficult to explain. The the way these are built and structured Andy is the line of credit you have available. So the equity you have available that you you haven't spent is in a line of credit uh, with the adjustable yep. rates. The, the structure of the loan is such that whatever interest rate is on the loan for the balance, the entire amount of access, so let's say the access is 250, the entire amount of access is going to grow by that interest rate. So your balance okay. might be $20,000 growing at, let's say, 3%, but the entire $250,000 that you have access to, so the remaining 230 is also expanding at that same exact interest rate. I'm not charged interest on it yet, but the, the amount available is increasing. By Correct. So with today okay. I have $230,000 available in a line of credit and I look at it again in a year, it's going to be 230,000 times 3% because my access has actually grown because that entire pool is growing by that interest rate. Now, why, why do they do that? It seems dangerous for the lenders unless the the they're supposing property values always go up it's not dangerous for the lender it's dangerous for the fha insurance fund right the lender is always uh, going to well, get right yeah insurance yeah. so you know uh, you have the ricp designation and wade fow has a great book around this for for those viewers wade fow uh is a uh, a part of the american not the american college I'm, I'm, yeah the american yeah, college, american college yeah. uh he wrote a great book on this he did a ton of research on using the reverse mortgage as a as a planning tool and yeah, his feeling is the value proposition right now in the line of credit with the reverse mortgage is way out of bounds with the risk that, that, that that's yeah. being taken on the shoulders of the FHA insurance fund. So he thinks long-term we're going to see the HUD really pull back on that line of credit and how that grows and restrict it in some way. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised because right now it's just, it's whatever that line of credit is grows indefinitely. I, I yeah. Mean, <laughs> okay. So that is what I what I thought I understood, but I was like that that doesn't seem right. That seems like such a uh, not freebie, but so in the interest of the borrower at the detriment of the lender. People don't use it that way, right? And that's yeah. that's the thing, right? I think if more people used it and took advantage of that, then the the government would really kind of take a much closer look at right. what are we offering here. But because most people aren't using it that way, most people are not using this as a strategic tool. Uh, to to plan against future risk. Most people are just, I have a need, I'm going to use it. Yeah, uh, And that's really where 
there ought to be a shift because if you're going to use the reverse mortgage, the, the very needs-based use is probably the worst use. I'm right. not saying you have other choices at that point. It's just not ideal. If you look at how these are really built, much better to use it as a long-term strategic vehicle. Okay. Uh, I have a question about the general underwriting approval process before we get there. Um, trust this question. So this isn't, I guess this isn't specific to the mortgage, but what happens with the home basis in the three situations when the owner dies? Uh, I'm going to venture to say unrelated to whether you have a mortgage outstanding or not, right? The basis is what it is. It's the, the house value on date of death or six months later, if the executor chooses the uh, alternate valuation date for estate purposes. Um yeah, there was a there was a great string on that, right? I think somebody asked a question. I don't know if it was about the reverse mortgage, but about mortgages in general, about um, being put on the deed of the house uh, before somebody passed away, and and a lot of people talked about how you would lose the the step up in basis in that situation. Um, and so it, I I think it's really irrelevant to the mortgage. To your point, Andy. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah, Teresa, I don't know this with one hundred percent certainty, but I, I would think unrelated to whether it's a mortgage or not simply the value of the house on the date of death is the basis. And that's what gets stepped up to. Um, if there's a mortgage against it, so be it. If there's not, it doesn't matter. The basis is the basis. Uh, question from Mavis again. Can you go over what happens if home values decrease significantly, such as 2008 housing crash, how it impacts the reverse mortgage customer? So Mavis, I'll assume you mean while the person's still alive. Um, what happens if anything here, Josh? House drops 30%, 40%. You're in South Florida or Vegas or something. You know, it's an interesting one, Andy. And, and Mavis, I appreciate the question because a lot of people, that's their big fear. You know, I, I borrow money from my house and then the, the value of my home drops. Uh, there's a really strong argument, the same argument that's kind of made in the annuity world with income guarantees that if I'm going to do some sort of insurance or hedge strategy, which the the reverse mortgage in a lot of ways could be considered an insurance instrument. Uh, better to do it when values are high versus when values are low. I'm getting yeah. the most out of it, the most value out of it. Uh, that's where your worst case scenario with these, if you really think it through, is you spend through the value of your house. That's that's the worst case scenario. We were, we're opening up a bucket of money to spend that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to open up. Yeah. So you start spending it down at the value of the house drops it doesn't necessarily impact what you can draw. What you can draw is guaranteed, right? Okay. So so what's accessible to you, you've already put in place and guaranteed uh, regardless of what the value of the house is. That's the nice thing about this. It can act as a hedge. Uh, now it yeah. acted as a much stronger hedge a decade ago before they reduced how much you could access. Now the house would have to drop really precipitously for it to be a, a hedge. But you know, in, in this instance, if you have the reverse mortgage, you have... You have removed the equity you have access to. You have removed that correlation from the home value. It is no longer correlated to the home value. That's that's uh, that's kind of where this becomes an insurance instrument. You, right. you, you, you divorce those two things. So I, I guess Mavis answered the question, really nothing, right? So long as you can keep paying property taxes, insurance, HOA fees, stay in the house as primary residence, maintenance and upkeep, House value is irrelevant. The only one that's going to hurt is whoever your heirs are. They get less <laughs> out of your estate. Is that, is that fair assessment, Josh? Yeah. I, I mean, you think about any given asset, a stock, for example. You yeah. know, the point of purchase matters and the point of sale matters. It's right. really no different with this. You know, in between, right, yeah. it's irrelevant. So uh, I, I've been talking on the assumption, you know, you take your house to the grave. But what if you do decide to sell? So now... Uh, let's go through this example. So your house was 500,000. You got a mortgage of 250. 
house drops 60%, it's underwater, you're 80 years old, you don't want to age in that house anymore, so you go to sell. Um, what happens? Can they dip into you for the difference or it's still non-recourse above and beyond the value of the house even when you're alive and sell? As, lo as long as you're selling for at least 95% appraised value, and okay. that does not that does not have to include real realtor fees, right? So you can still pay a real estate agent to sell your house. Uh, they you can never owe more than what the house sells for. So that ninety five percent that's kind of of appraised value is just what you need to sell for. So in that instance, it, you're you're not you're not the guarantor on the loan, right? That that's that's a big difference between this and most other types of loans where you have a personal guarantee on those. You do not with the reverse mortgage. The house carries it. And that's just Heckam's or is that the private flavor as well? I want to say, I want to say both, but don't, don't hold me to that, Andy, because there's, okay. there's the, the, the private, there's a few of them on the private side uh, and they, they could all be a little bit different. Most of them follow the Heckam really closely though. They, they okay. follow all the same guidelines. So chances are yes, but I, I'd rather not don't hold my feet to the fire on that one, please. Okay, sure. All right. So question for me about the underwriting process. So when, when I learned about these four or five years ago, um, there was a course that prospective borrowers have to go through. There's the suitability, you know, can, can you afford this type thing? So can you just walk through what's involved? So you have to be 62 for a Heckam. So let's assume I'm 63. My house is fully paid. I want to get, I'm, I'm interested in reverse mortgage. What's the process? Yeah. So, so the great, great question. Generally with underwriting, uh, something unique is the counseling you just described. Uh, every consumer doing a reverse mortgage has to go through counseling. Uh, there's, there's government approved debt counseling services out there. It's an in-person or over the phone meeting where they review your options. They review your budget. They make sure that there's no elder abuse going on or, or fraud. There's no coercion there. You know, there's nobody taking advantage and there's mental capacity. So, so there's a number of things that they're really that they're really checking on to make sure that people understand this is not their only option. Because a lot of people have absolutely in the past been taken advantage of by people who are not ethical and they're just trying to you know, make a sale. Yeah. Uh, and and it's a problem. I mean, our our industry unfortunately earned a bad reputation, um, and part of that is on our industry. Yeah, you know, I'm the first to admit it, and it's it's an unfortunate thing, but it's a reality. So that counseling is really step one. And depending on the state you live in, you can't do a thing until that counseling's done. So each state's a little bit different in their requirements, but typically you're gonna do that up front. In regards to the rest of underwriting, Andy, we look at income and we look at credit history. We don't look at credit score like traditional okay. uh, financing. We, we look at credit history. So we're a lot less concerned with your score as we are in the last 24 months or potentially 36 months. Have you been on time? with with your installment and revolving debts, your taxes and your insurance and your association. And if you haven't been, do you have a good reason for not being, whether it's divorce, hospitalization or death? Uh, and if there's a pattern of irresponsibility or incapacity to pay, that's when you're going to run into challenges with underwriting okay. on that side. On the income side, it's really what are your debt obligations, your mandatory obligations? So again, revolving installment debt, so on and so forth. What yeah. are your utility costs and your HOA dues if you have them? And how much money do you have left over? And whether it's one person or multiple le people living in the house, it's regionalized across the country, how much residual income you need based okay. on the number of people living in the property, as well as uh, the four regions in the, in the country. 
So that number, you know, varies down here in the Southeast. It's, it's just under $600. Other parts of the country, it's a little bit higher. Uh, but that's the other aspect of underwriting. And then again, because it's an FHA insured loan, even on the proprietary side, they're going to, they're going to hold you to this for the most part, the property has to be eligible. And that's where the condominium conversation comes into play. So typically single family residences, townhomes and villas, condominiums, technically, yes, but more often than not, you're going to have real challenges. Okay. So you mentioned credit score, not taken into account at all or not in, in a big way. It's not, it, if I were to look for traditional financing, I'm going to be tranched based on my right. credit score, right? right? So what I'm offered is going to be based on my, my credit score. Uh, it's irrelevant with the reverse mortgage. And here's why. Again, almost all of our focus is going to be the last 24 months. Outside of bankruptcies yeah. and foreclosures, it's really the last 24 months that, that we get focused on. And you could have an awful credit score because of something four or five, six years ago that's still on your credit report because it's going to hold for seven years. Yeah. So your credit score could be god awful, uh, and that's not going to have zero impact on whether or not you are able to get a reverse mortgage. You might have to explain it and provide a yeah. letter of explanation, but it's not going to be a determining factor of whether or not you're approved for the loan or if you have to have that life expectancy set aside I talked about earlier. So how does it work? Um, looks like we'll, this should be about it for it. Sorry, one, one, one last question, but. So I've seen posts in other groups and people ask, like they, they want to get a mortgage to buy a house, traditional mortgage, but they just retired, wages went away. Um, they have sizable assets, but not a lot of income, maybe social security, and they have trouble getting a loan. Is that uh, relaxed or, or different, I should say, in reverse mortgage? Like you don't care whether or not they have a job. You, you know, they're likely retired, right? You're not, they don't need to repay. So is this the possible answer for someone who's retired has a lot of assets, but doesn't have a lot of income uh, is reverse mortgage, a different story, you know, easier to get, if you will, than a traditional mortgage. It is. And we, we alluded to that a little bit. We touched on it. Yeah. Uh, you're not, you're not being underwritten for payments of principal interest right. taxes and insurance. You're only being underwritten for taxes and insurance. In addition to that, assets can be treated as income. They can be dissipated. So okay. we can take assets, including the house itself as an asset and convert that value to an income stream based off life expectancy. So essentially, if you have a half million dollars in an account, but you're not taking income out of it, chances are you will not get approved for traditional financing. But for the reverse mortgage, we have a half million dollars that's being converted to an income stream. If you have a 10-year life expectancy, well, we've got $50,000 a year of yeah. assets now that we can treat as income. Uh, so it makes qualifying much more realistic you go back to, wow, 27% of people at a maximum who got declined for traditional financing in this age group. How many of them fell into that situation? Probably right. a good amount. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, that's good to know. I, I never really thought of this as the possible solution for someone with a lot of assets, low income on paper, um, being able to get a mortgage. So obviously yeah. got to be 62. Okay. And you think about it, I, I mean, they can make payments on it just like a traditional mortgage. It yeah. does not have to be this non-amortizing loan. Right, that, right. Somebody like that, it's totally in their control if it is or it isn't. That's where, you know, I, I don't want to say the reverse mortgage gets demonized, but where people in their heads have put it isn't all the places it could work. Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Okay. Um, all right. So I, I already held you here for more than an hour. I appreciate it. It looks like that's yeah. it for the questions. Um, 
parting words where, where can someone find out more about you uh what you do i just uh i know you said this is your website right mutualfortlauderdale.com yeah well so you know we're in we're in the facebook group here live so anybody who's seeing this on facebook um you're welcome to go to my facebook profile my business page um you can go to my website i have a ton of videos and resources you do I, I like great, great stuff out there yeah 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 it, i'm really all about education i, I like to con- consider myself a consultant. Um, I typically do all my work through planners, you know, that's, that's where I get my clients from. So, uh, I go to the website, you know, feel free to reach out to me. I'm incredibly accessible and I'm, you know, business comes when it's appropriate and yeah. I don't really, you know, I, I, I would hope people get the sense. I'm not here to try to sell anybody anything. Right. I, I will give you these last parting words. Um, this gets used a word a lot, this word. Uh, and I, I don't love the word because it's not a word people use a lot, but it, it's an important concept. Wealth is fungible, right? Wealth mm. is fungible. That means the reverse mortgage is a way of spending down the value in your home. If we're spending down the value in our home, it means there's a good chance we're not spending down the value in our other assets. Right. And so the reverse mortgage is not necessarily a way to spend down money in a vacuum with no other impact on the rest of our finances, it could very well lead to more efficiencies in the rest of our finances. And that's the concept that I think is starting to really take off a little bit more, Andy. It's just this idea of if used in coordination and collaboration with the rest of our assets, it can help optimize. Sure. Right. And, and, And that's really the biggest concept I would love people to understand better. Yeah, it's another tool. It's another thing at your disposal that could be used when it makes sense, you know, at the right time. So, okay. Exactly right. Not for everybody yeah. by any means, just right. probably more than it's used for today. Yeah. Now, so you are in Florida. Are you able to work with people throughout the country or certain states you're, you're limited to? I'm in 48 states, essentially. So outside yeah. of New York and West Virginia, both very special states. Love them both. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, New York's a, a, you know, it's a unique beast in the financial services world. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I mean, if people, wherever they're listening in from it, I'm happy to have a conversation no matter where you're from. And if I'm not the right person to help you for whatever reason, then I'm happy to try to put you in touch with the person who is. Great. All right. Just, uh, looking here. Thank you very much. People happy here. Uh, David Fultz, always a crowd pleaser. Thank you. So informative. Thank you, Josh and Andy. All right, cool. Um, well, that is it. So Josh told me before the call, he's usually in bed by nine, uh, nine Eastern. He's uh, 15 minutes past his bedtime. He's going to turn into a pumpkin soon. So we better let him go. Um, so Josh, seriously, thank you very much. Super informative. Uh, just stick around after I kill the broadcast. So uh, just circle up afterward. But thank you all. Hope you enjoyed. Take thank you, care. everybody. Okay, that's a wrap. That was it. That was part two of two of my talk with Josh Bloom reverse mortgage specialist from Mutual of Omaha. Um, um, I hope you all got a lot out of this. I, I thought, uh, I know I did when uh, Josh came on Facebook uh, last year, 2021, and, and shared all the stuff with us, with me, with 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 uh, watchers in the Facebook group. I was like, uh, you know, I learned a lot from it. I, I knew a decent bit about reverse mortgages, but this really, um, uh, you know, brought up some stuff I, I didn't already know and was, was, was glad Josh came on and shared his wealth of knowledge with us. So I hope you enjoyed it as well. As always, if you if you like this podcast, you'll definitely dig my other content sources. My Facebook group is Taxes and Retirement. My YouTube channel is Retirement Planning Demystified. And my monthly newsletter is Retirement Planning Insights. 
and uh, shameless grovel for for some positive love here. If you do like this podcast, I would greatly appreciate taking a few seconds, a couple minutes to leave a review, a thumbs up, a like, a five star or whatever it may be on whatever podcast platform you use to listen to this. I would be greatly, greatly appreciative if you were to uh, throw some positive recognition my way for this podcast. It'll, it'll help others find this podcast more easily by getting picked up in whatever algorithm process your podcast platform uh, uses. Well, that's it. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed my two-part chat with Josh Bloom, and I will see you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.